0: Welcome to the Grow Bowl with Disability Podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most. To help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives.
1: I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristan Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory Clickability and I'm a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy.
0: Today's episode of Grow Bold with Disability is Growing Bold as an Amputee, and our guest is meningococcal survivor and amputee, Mike Rolls. In this episode, we'll discover just how Mike contracted meningococcal, how he survived, and how he came out the other side with a whole new perspective on life.
1: Mike, welcome to Grow Bold with Disability. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start back in 2001 when you were 18 on a footy trip to Tasmania with the Hampton Football Club. What exactly happened, Mike? Yeah, look, it was a long time ago now, 2001. Gee, that's half, over half my life ago. I feel like you're making me feel like a bit of an, an old, old, old boy now. So, um, yeah, I was just a, a young kid. I feel like looking back and, and 18, just turned 18. And, uh, the opportunity came up to go on a football trip with a few mates that I was very close with. I remember being so excited I could barely sleep the night before and I, I grabbed my bags, I popped them in the car and mum drove me around to my friend's house in in Sandringham where I lived and uh, from there we were going to the airport. Um, I gave mum a kiss on the cheek and uh, I jumped into the car and off we went to the, the airport. And uh, that was a very last memory that I had of, of anything. Um, my very next memory was waking up after a five-and-a-half-week induced coma back in Melbourne at the Alfred Hospital. And all I can see is these you know tubes and uh, machines next to me that are beeping and i I very quickly realize that i'm I'm obviously in a hospital and I look at the end of my bed, and all my family are there make out their faces and obviously a very gradual wake up But my mum, my dad, my brother, and my sister and they're they're just staring down down at me in this bed with this look that I've never seen before of just total despair and helplessness and obviously you know. I want some answers because I've gone from a happy, healthy 18-year-old kid with with uh, with no issues in the world to being in some pretty significant strife because I looked down at my right hand. Um, remember, that was one of the first things I noticed and two of my fingers were missing. And I had a, a sheet across my waist, so I wasn't really aware of all the other things that had happened until a doctor comes in and he starts to, to lay some pretty intense news on me. So he tells me First of all, Mike, you've been really sick. Um, sorry, mate, you're going to be in hospital for a very long time. And I'm thinking, shit, you know, um, like I said, running around a football field to being in hospital for a long time. What's, what's happening here? And, and then he sort of explains a little bit more and he says, you've been, you know, you've, you've been sick and, you know, i I've, I'm sorry to tell you, but you've contracted meningococcal septicemia. And as you can imagine, like, oh. Like many people, i would never heard of that before. I had no idea what that was. You know, what does it mean? Um, how's it happened? All I knew that, you know, I was, I felt like I'd been run over by a truck, really. And, um, as I said, I had a shit across my waist. And then he, he gives me the most heartbreaking news because being so sporty growing up and relying on my, I guess my physical ability, um, in many ways. Um, and, and he, and he tells me, Mike, you've been really sick. You've been in hospital for a long time. Unfortunately, this meningococcal has resulted in sepsis, and we've would we've had to remove your right leg below your knee and half of your left foot, and mm-hmm, I'm, wow. and I'm just you know obviously crushing news uh, to hear something like that, um, and obviously never meeting an amputee and 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 sort of you know it dawning on me that wow my life has actually changed forever in that moment. So obviously it was a pretty a pretty sobering thing, and I don't really think I have the words to explain what what was going on in my head. It was just a, mm. an absolute. Mess of emotions, um, not great ones. And then the, the injury side of things was kind of one thing. And then the complications of the meningococcal was another. So when I was in the Alfred Hospital, I, I had a tracheotomy in my neck and, you know, I had lung infections. I had golden staph all in my wounds. Uh, I was Jeez. in a mess. So, so kind of the amputation at that point was probably the least of my concerns, which sounds crazy to say, but yeah. I was kind of life life and death, right? I was, I was not able to breathe on my own very well. Um, yeah, my injuries were so extensive. I had skin grafting all over my body. It looks like a patchwork quilt. Uh, I've got two fingers missing on my right hand. My right leg below the knee was removed. Half of my left foot. Lots of skin grafting front and back on the shin. And, uh, and my nose was actually taken away. And, and my weight went from 80 kilos right down to 47 kilos. So I was. I know yeah, that's incredible, yeah, so isn't was, it? And, and obviously, there's, they remove the legs, so they, that gets rid of. <laughs> But, <laughs> but, but, I, but I literally I – li- All that muscle. Yeah, well, I was never I never had any of that anyway to begin with, guys. So.
0: <laughs> hey, Mike, let's go back to – I've been listening to your story and reading up about your story. The thing that intrigued me was you kissed mum goodbye pretty much at the airport on your way to Tassie. Then you wake up in the hospital. You didn't go straight off the airplane to the hospital. You went on a footy trip.
1: Yeah. What happened in all of that sort of part? So I tell it exactly as I recall it. So I went from one thing mm. – to the other and now I, I went to the airport, I got on the plane with all my teammates and we had a great time from all reports um, in Tasmania, got up to plenty of mischief and I'm sure there was a lot of, you know, drinking and, you know, shenanigans going on um, and then at the end of the trip, I went to the airport with my teammates and clearly I wasn't very well but the problem is everyone thought I was probably just hungover. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I and I was you know the, the tail end of a football trip, and I was lying on the on the airport floor groaning and, and everything. And uh, one of my teammates, um, Rowan, said, "Oh, I think we should probably, um, you know, he doesn't seem like he's really good. Maybe we should call someone." And eventually, they ended up calling the ambulance. My team flew home, and I stayed back in Hobart. And I, I got rushed by ambulance back to the Royal Hobart Hospital. And they did all these tests, um, and eventually they found out what was wrong with me. And I, I think I slipped into a coma. Uh, they called my parents and they said, get down to the Hobart. Mike's got about one hour to live. Did they work it out pretty quickly? Cause meningococcal is notoriously difficult to diagnose, isn't it? It is, it is really difficult to diagnose. Uh, it did take a little bit of time. And obviously the longer that you wait, the sepsis can take hold. And obviously you can, you know, chances of, of actually dying increase. Um, but I was obviously a fair way along the line, um, and then by the time they got the antibiotics in me, the damage was kind of already done, and and uh, that's why um, slipping into a coma. And what it does is the sepsis causes clotting of your blood, I believe, and starts to struggle to pump. So your extremities are affected badly, so they start to lose circulation, and eventually uh, they have to uh, remove the parts of your body that aren't uh, viable anymore uh, and have gone black and are going to continue to you know infect you if you leave them on, so they've got to amputate in order to save your life. Right. And I mean, on that, I want to specifically ask about wound care. I mean, that would have been so important for you with all the serious skin grafts that, that were going on. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, wound care was, um, I don't know, like, I still remember when I was in the Alfred and up on the 6th West Ward, they'd have to come and change your dressings. I remember it being like, I don't know, would have been a couple of hour process. Wow. Because I had... You know dressings on all, all over my body. You know both legs, uh, shoulders, back of my head had a wound on it, just from bed sores. I, I, I kind of find it funny talking about this sort of stuff because it just it's, it's kind of like you put it out of your mind, but when you go back there, you think, oh, God, jeez, that was really shit. Like that was a mm. that was a horrendous thing. And and the daily rituals and routines. You know, I remember there was a first time I had a bath was just this big epic you know goal that I'd had, and they're like, we're going to try and give you a bath because you know. Hadn't had one for so long, and they've got this thing that they put you on, and they dip you into the bath like you're a dim sim in a fryer, like literally <laughs> like one of them. So I was, but that was a great day. I got in there, and and I was able to have a bath, and and that was kind of my biggest goal in those early days when you know all my friends and and mates are all out traveling and partying and going to school and living their lives, and I'm getting dipped into a a, a bath at the Alfred Hospital, <laughs> like a dim pretty, sim. Pretty <laughs> pretty pretty depressing, to be honest with you. So. Yeah.
0: How long before you went home? I mean, it must have been hard also being a very active 18-slash-19-year-old kid. How long were you in hospital for? Uh, Three months
1: at the Alfred. My parents were in and out and doing sort of shift work. They were in every single day and resting when and where they could. Uh, and then, three months at rehab, so I got transferred to Caulfield General Medical Center and they have a an amputee ward where you can go and they can get you know you can get fitted for a leg and these sorts of things and then um eventually build your strength and uh, and go home and even when I went home after six months, I was still coming back five days a week for rehab for a very long time after that Wow, and so when you did go home. I mean, you must have all these thoughts going through your head around your future and, and what that entails. Yeah, what were you thinking around this time? I think I can sum it up in, um, in one question that I continued, continually would ask myself. And I think it's a very, you know, it's a destructive question, but it's a very uh, normal thing for people to ask when they go through some type of physical trauma or any trauma for that matter. And I remember I started asking it specifically when I I got, but I guess it sort of the magnitude of what had happened to me hit me in the face. I remember in order to get home from that three month period at rehab, I remember the nurse saying, you're going to have to prove to us that you can have a shower by yourself. And I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I got out of my chair and I got undressed and they had this adjoining shower in Caulfield General Medical Center, which is like Built to house the returning war veterans, I believe, way back, uh, way back when. And I wheeled myself into the bathroom, and I don't know why, but someone thought it would be a good idea in a rehab ward to put a full-length mirror from the floor to the ceiling. Right. On the only uh, entrance in the way to the to the shower. And I remember as I wheeled past, I stopped and I, I sort of faced the mirror, and I got a a glimpse of you know my myself in in the mirror and this like this naked figure. You know, um, my leg was gone, my grafting was just like just like look. Both front and back of my left leg and half a foot, and I'm just looking at the, at my body and my ribcage is showing. My eyes are sunken in. Half of my nose is taken away as well, and and I'm just looking at myself, thinking, "How on earth do you ever get back from something like this? Mm-hmm. Like you can't. Like I couldn't really see a way. Um, and I guess that's when I started to ask that question I mentioned before. I, was, you know, I started to ask, "Why me? You know, I was thinking about the unfairness of the situation. And why did it have to happen to me? You know, you look at the numbers of meningococcal and in any given year, it's, it affects one in a million people get to the point where they lose limbs or die. Mm. And that's not the kind of lottery that you want to be winning. And I had won it. And I remember thinking about that question a lot and, and looking at my reflection, I remember thinking that my hope and my optimism, cause I've always been really optimistic and upbeat kind of character, mm-hmm. but it kind of really, really took a hit right then and there. And I'm like, wow, this is actually, you know, it dawned on me how real it was. And, the initial shock and denial of what had gone on soon turned into, uh, you know, resisting my situation and wanting to go back to the way things were. So, I guess that question sort of followed me home, and um, it was all all day, every day. I'd I'd kind of you know slip into this depressive state where I would I would not want to do anything. You know, I'd literally be you know dragging my feet for lack of a better term, even if, even though it's not not an <laughs> applicable one here. Where every time I'd have to get up in the morning and go back to Corfield. Um, you know, I'd cry and stuff on the way there and yeah, I just think back and how incredibly hard that would have been for my parents, um, and how incredibly strong they would have, been, have to be, you know, not just them but my sister and my brother as well, just trying to continually motivate and push me because they know that it was the best thing for me. Um and and whilst I'd sort of, you know, lost an element of hope and optimism, I, I I'm really pleased that I was just so fortunate and so lucky. To have such an amazing support network with me because for some people that's not the case and and it's, and it's really, really challenging.
0: How do you get out of a rut like that? Who, you mentioned your family. What did they do to help?
1: Yeah, I often, I speak uh, professionally in, in schools and and corporates. And one of the the stories I tell was a real catalyst for that change and that shift in mindset. Mm. And sometimes when we're in those situations and we all are, right? We get in those situations. We have why me moments every single day. It's perfectly normal. It's a natural. Human response, you know, I, you know, even little things can tip you off, you know, um, or, or change your mood for the day. You know, I love to get a coffee in the morning and I get a half full flat white with half a sugar, which I'm sure is a really annoying order for the brewster. And then often, like, you'll drive off and you'll have a sip and they've got to put the sugar in. I have a why me moment right then. You know, like you, yes. you literally just want to, you know, you know, you want to, but then first world, what problems. do you have to do in order to shift away from that and say, okay, look, it's not the end of the world. Even though this did seem like the end of the world, I literally had to shift my focus into something else and start asking a better question. And the story that I share a lot is, is it actually happened is where, you know, my dad on a sunny Sunday morning, he, he really wanted me to to do something that I didn't want to do. I'd spent a long week at rehab. All I wanted to do was sit in front of the TV and 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 relax because lying down in front of the TV was in the, was that was the position that I was in the least amount of pain, right? Yeah. Of course you wouldn't want to go in there because going somewhere means you have to get up, get in the wheelchair and go wheel out the front, get in the car, transfer, big hassle. So dad pops his head in the room on a Sunday morning and he says, hey Mike, what are you up to? He's got this really cheeky grin on his face and I said, oh, not much, <laughs> mate, what do you reckon? I'm just going to sit here and watch telly. And he goes, well, it's a lovely day outside. How about we go for a bit of a drive? And my dad and I are incredibly close. He's, he's my best mate. Um, and we spent many, many years growing up, lots of, lots of time on the golf course together. It was kind of our thing to do. And he, and he sort of like, uh, he asked me what I'm doing. I said, not much. I just want to watch TV. And he says, why don't we go for a bit of a drive? And I'm very reluctant. I'm telling him all the things that I can't do and that why me sort of circulating in my head. And he sort of like keeps pushing. He goes, come on, we'll go for a quick drive, 10 minutes, and then we'll get you straight back to bed and you can relax for the rest of the day. So reluctantly I agree. I get in the chair. Dad wheels me out the front. I get in the car and I put my seat back so I'm comfortable. I didn't have an arse. Not that I've ever had one, but they, that felt like, felt like that got amputated as well. So I get a lot of pain through my backside as well. And, uh, and we're driving and I remember thinking, okay, he said 10 minutes and it gets to around the 10 minute mark. And I, I turned to my dad and I said, okay, enough's enough. 10 minutes. Let's turn the car around and go back home. I'm pretty sore, mate. And he keeps on driving. He got this angry sort of, sort of smirks at me and he goes, come on. He goes 10 more minutes and he keeps on driving. And I bit my tongue we get further down the road, 20 minutes and then 25 minutes. I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing mathematical sums. I'm thinking 25, that's 50 minutes away from the bed. That's a long time. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how unfair and, you know, is he being, he's not really considering, you know, what I'm dealing with here. It's just all about my dad. And he keeps on driving and, and I said, okay, enough's enough. Turn it around. We're going straight back home. I'm really sore, I'm tired. I need to get back into bed, mate. And he keeps on, he goes, five more minutes, I promise, then we'll turn it around, we'll get going. And I bit my tongue for a second time. And then we start getting down from my house in and We're like 45 minutes down the road. We're on the Mornington Peninsula. I'm thinking, you know, uh, I'm just furious at, at, at how unfair he's being. And then all of a sudden he pulls the car into the dunes, which is a golf mm-hmm. course we spent lots of time playing, uh, playing out together. He parks the car. I look at him and I said, you know, what the hell are we doing here? And he goes, oh, I've just got to go up and take a quick piss, Mike. I'm thinking all this space so I could take a wee, like is it, you know, ridiculous. So he parks the car, leaves me in the car, and I'm I'm steaming. And he disappears. And five, six, seven minutes pass. I'm thinking, you know, how long does it take to go to the toilet? Like honestly. And then I see him coming back, and he's driving in a golf cart. Uh oh. He's got that same look on his face. He parks it next to the car, and he's got a grin from me. He opens the door, and I, I remember just unleashing and letting him have it, and telling him, you know, how unfair and how ridiculous. I'm like, what are you doing with that? And he looks at me, you know, he just cops all this abuse for a moment. And through all the abuse, he looks at me, waits for me to finish. And then he says, Hey, he goes, I get all that. I goes, but what about we go for a quick drive? We'll go for a quick drive up the first fairway. We'll turn the cart around, put you in the car. We'll take you straight back home, Mike. And I can tell yeah. that he's not taking no for an answer and he just keeps he's on got pushing your
0: me. Almost, hasn't
1: he? <laughs> yeah, it kind of has. And really nah. I can't <laughs> run away at this point in time. And you know. He's probably going to steal my leg or or do something like that, knowing my dad. And 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 he really wants me to do it, and I really don't want to do it. And again, all the excuses to everything I can't do start to, you know, come out of my mouth. You know, I've only just learned to stand on this leg. I've only just learned to transfer from a wheelchair to a car, from a car to a wheelchair. You've got no idea how much pain I'm in, mate. I can't believe how unfair you're being. Like, I want to go home. And uh, and as I said, it just washed over him. So eventually he convinces me. I get in the cart. He helps me into the cart. And uh, as we drive up the first fairway of the Junes golf course, I'm looking around, I'm thinking to myself, wow, like I, I've got to admit all the pain kind of disappeared and I'm um, smelling the fresh cut grass and the sun on my face and, you know, away mm. from that awful yeah. sterile hospital environment that I would st- I was stuck in for so long and it was really nice to be out there and, and then all of a sudden he stops a cart in the middle of the fairway and I'm thinking, what now? And he looks at me and he's, he's the cheeky bugger has snuck a 7-iron into the cart and <laughs> pulls a golf ball out of his pocket. And he says to me, hey, Mike, how about you have a hit? And I, I look at him and I said, Dad, now you've completely lost <laughs> There's no way I can hit a golf ball down this fairway. I know you want me to. I've only learned to stand on this leg. I've got this stupid little booty on my left side. I'm too unbalanced. I'm too sore. I'm tired. I need you to take me home right now. And he looks at me very calmly and he says, it's okay. He goes, I've got an idea. I'll hold you up by your hips. Why don't you have one swing? If you fail, no big deal. So my dad helps me out of the car, promises to hold me by my hips. He's got me up. I get as balanced as I could. I drop the ball on the fairway and then I swing back with the golf club. And as I came through, I made the most beautiful contact with the golf ball. It's like flushed this thing right out of the middle. It's gone like 140 metres down the middle of the fairway, like I absolutely flushed it, and Dad's so excited he started clapping, and he's for completely forgot to hold me, <laughs> and I fell flat on my face on the fairway. Fantastic! And drop, and and he's dancing around like a cat on a hot tin roof, thinking he'd hurt me and everything like this. And he's, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, but the excitement got the better of him. And then I rolled over, and I we sort of, you know, both burst into laughter. I I hadn't hurt myself, and it was a really, really special moment that I share with my dad, Um, but it was also a moment of, of realisation and a shift away from a why me mindset because I guess thanks to the, the help and the encouragement and I guess the stubbornness of someone to push me even mm. when I didn't want to be pushed, uh, he helped me to realise something that day. I realised that if I've got any chance of living a happy, healthy life through sudden change and adversarial circumstance, I needed to stop telling myself all the things that I couldn't do and start focusing on some of the things that maybe I could. Mm. And that was a really powerful moment and a shift away from a why me mindset and into a better mindset where we move away from that resistance to change and we move into an exploratory phase, which is more around exploring our new normal. You know, we've heard that a lot through this pandemic. Mm. You know, mm. everyone's talking about, I can't wait for things to go back to normal. Well, unfortunately, that's probably never going to happen and, and it won't happen. So how can we explore ways to make what is currently the normal, or the new normal we're working towards. How can we use that to our advantage and leverage that so that we can be better and more positive in the future? And that's what I guess my mindset and mentality um, was from that day forward, is it was, okay, what's next? I can focus on all the things I can't do. I can't play footy, I can't hang out with my mates, that's never gonna be the same. Or I can start saying, well, what about I do something that I can do, like golf, still a sporting outlet, and do it to the best of my ability. And since then, I've I've taken golf really seriously and and it's been a really, really big part not just of my life, but as, as a way of, uh, of managing my mental health too. I love nothing more than going to the golf course, turning my phone off and, and just being out there for four or five hours with people enjoying, enjoying an activity that I absolutely love. And, and you know what? Some people hate golf. It's boring and everything. That's fine. But we've all got something <laughs> that we do that recharges us. And for me, that's what that became. What's your handicap at at the moment? Uh, I think it's five, five point three or five point four. I think it's uh, at the moment. Yeah, okay.
0: yeah, not not too bad at all. Although you, you you're in Victoria, so you would have had a year off too. Yeah, so if <laughs> no no one's allowed on the <laughs> golf yeah. course. Yeah, it was it was
1: it was quite a battle. Um, but then again, um, we have a bit of a why me moment. Then we realise that there's people that are they're losing their jobs or losing loved ones, and and you've got people um not to mention any names, but you know high profile people complaining about golf twenty four seven. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you know, get a grip, mate. So I exactly. think I think we could all, um, you know, the good thing about being in Melbourne. Who likes to play in the middle of winter anyway? So correct. <laughs> it, it, now, yeah, it's been it's been good. And and, and look, you know, like I said, this you've got to get a bit of perspective. We're we're in, you know, very fortunate to live in a, a, an amazing city. And if being stuck indoors um, for six months is what we have to do, that's what we have to do. So there might there's one
0: thing I did want to touch on, and that is so now. You've got a disability, okay? You, you, your legs are amputated. Did people start treating you differently? Now, I don't mean your family. I mean just the general public. Did they start treating you differently? And then, what did you tell them about your disability?
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting one. I, I don't. Uh, I, I definitely think there was there was some some friends that I uh, and this and this is uh, you know everyone handles things differently. Mm. so I had some friends that maybe didn't handle you know the 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 magnitude and the gravity of the situation so well, and I had others that I wasn't so close with that were really great stepped up and that's not a, a, a you know saying anything negative about the people that didn't. I, it was a lot to handle, and to be honest with you, I pushed everyone away and it had to be family first yeah mm-hmm. in those early days. But I think I gravitate naturally towards people that don't treat me differently and they don't give me any special treatment or you know fall over themselves to help me or assume that I need help or assume that my life is you know tough and I'm always sad and these sorts of things i tend to gravitate towards people that just treat me uh, that i'm just mike um and i just happen to have you know legs that i clip on in the morning um that's that's really the only difference and and the word you know disability is something that comes up a lot um I don't necessarily live and breathe disability. I understand I have one and I'm aware that, you know, society gives me that label. Um, but I find if I focus on that fact all day and it becomes my world, then that's not necessarily going to be a helpful mindset to be in. So I just kind of get on with things. Of course, it's going to cause complications. Of course, I'm going to get soreness and not be able to walk well. Sometimes I might end up on crutches and it's going to create complications. But, um, I think where we, you know, we're, they say where focus goes, energy flows. They say that all the time. And that's so true. Mm. Like if I focus on just getting on with things and managing, uh, the things that I have to deal with, then I, I, f- I think I can live a far better life. But in terms of answer your question, do people treat me differently? You know, sure. Of course they do. Um, it's normal and it's often comes from a place of innocence. I don't think it, it's a malicious thing. Some people are very curious and they might ask questions that. You know uh, you, that can be taken the wrong way, but I think it's important to understand if they're asking questions. That's a great thing because they're starting dialogue with people, and I think it comes from a good place. I've never had a situation where someone's like, "Hey, Mike, can you put some bloody pants on me?" That's offensive to look at.
0: You <laughs> yeah. know, like that's not
1: a situation I've ever had, and and I don't no. think I ever would have. You know, I've I I think I think people are generally good. You know, I believe that. I don't think there's there's people who go out of their way to upset or offend. Yeah, absolutely. And Mike, as you know, this podcast is called Grow Bold with Disability. Uh, and we always like to ask our guests this final question. What does living a bold life mean to you? That's a great question. Um, I, th- I think, uh, and I'm actually in a situation like that at the moment, I, I think um, pushing yourself through uncomfortable scenarios. I think that the easy option is and I'm not obviously not talking to a point like don't push yourself to a point of burnout or something like that but but obviously the tendency when we are faced with challenges is to shy away or to walk the other way and I think you know there are times when that's the easy option for me I think that growing bold to me would be to continually test yourself and continually challenge yourself because when we get used to that uncertainty whilst it's not pleasant at at the time when we're experiencing it it's those times where we get the most learning and we get the most value and the most character building um, so that would be be my advice was you know if you're challenged um, lean into it and embrace the challenge as opposed to shying away from it fantastic really well said mike thanks
0: so much for joining us here today on our grow bowl with disability podcast which is brought to you by Ferros care and our listeners can find out more about mike oh and the book too Ditching the dead weight. And also hit up Mike's website, mikerolls.com.au. There'll be links provided in today's episode show notes. Mate, that was very inspirational today. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Ferros Care, an NDIS partner delivering local area coordination services in Queensland, South Australia, and the Australian Capital Territory. Ferros Care is a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Bold. And for over 30 years, Ferros has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferroscare.com.au.